God, we thank you for the great joy of Easter. I thank you for the reminder uh, with all the joy, all the celebration of the, the great news that you raised Jesus from death to life and all, all that that means for us. I, I pray that as we look at this story this morning, we would have a, a renewed sense of awe of what you've done and a renewed sense of how wonderful this news really is uh, for us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as you uh, came in this morning, you were probably handed a bulletin, and you probably noticed that on the front it says, The Best News. I know that's a pretty bold statement. That's a pretty strong claim uh, at the front of the bulletin. But, but I'm guessing that you probably didn't even think twice about it, right? You didn't, it didn't make you blink or think, oh, what on, what on earth are they proclaiming this morning? Uh, we've, we've, we hear lots of, of strong statements, lots of bold things are said uh, all the time around us. We're inundated with advertisements and banners and headlines and posts that declare everything in, in, in superlative terms, right? Everything is amazing, it is, it is ultimate, it is the greatest, it is the best. Uh, my wife and I watched a movie several years ago called The Invention of Lying, and, and the premise of the, the movie was, what if we lived in a world where, where everyone told the whole truth all time, and there was no such uh, thing as not telling the truth, there was no such thing as lying. And it's a comedy that's built on this whole concept of how shocking it is when we hear someone say what's really on their mind, rather than spinning it in a certain way. We're so used to things being put in a certain light that when we hear things as they starkly are, it's kind of surprising, kind of shocking. So at one point in the movie, they come toward a nursing home, and, and rather than having some kind of frilly name like Windsor Park Manor, a, a covenant retirement community, it just says a sad place for hopeless old people, right? It's, we're, we're not used to that kind of honesty. Or at another point, there's a bus that drives by, and it zooms into the advertisement on the side of the bus. For, it's for Pepsi. It says Pepsi when they don't have Coke. We're used to hearing things more as, oh, this is the greatest drink. This is the, the most uh, secure place for your loved one. This is a beautiful place for them to live out uh, the rest of their life. We're used to the, the really positive side of things. Uh, one of my favorite lines that I've seen around the internet lately is, uh, the best thing you'll see today. And if you uh, Google that, if you do a search for that, you'll see that there's actually not consensus over what is objectively, exclusively, the best news that you're going to hear on a particular day. I checked earlier this week, and there were a number of things that were vying for that title. Sesame Street characters uh, reading famous movie lines was dubbed the best thing that you'll see today, but then so was a video of a baby throwing up her arms after unwrapped from a nap. Baby races at an NBA game, a trailer for a movie called Wolf Cop, a video of cats opening Christmas presents. All of these are uh, claiming to be the best thing that you'll see today. But we've heard this kind of line enough times that we've largely become inoculated against superlatives like best. We might still click and watch the baby video. We might still click and watch the cats opening presents. But, but we know that this isn't, isn't the best thing ever. It's not the best thing we're going to see today. It's just a mild diversion from doing the things that we want to do. And because we want a mild diversion, we're going to click on this and actually see it. But we've seen this enough times that, that these claims have stopped making much of an impression on us anymore. We don't take them at face value. Right? No, no one wants to get played. And, and we've, it doesn't take too many times to kind of learn the game. And so when you come to church and you see a banner that says, the best news... Maybe you respond with a little bit of skepticism, right? It sounds like a setup. It's just another advertising slogan designed to get your attention. Or maybe you look at that and you just shrug your shoulders because, of course, you're going to hear that. It's Easter Sunday. This is the kind of thing that we need to say. 
But today is a great day. Today is the kind of day where only superlative statements like best are going to do. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. It means that death has been defeated by God. And, and this is, is news that is, is truly and without advertising embellishment, the best news. Even in a world where no one could ever lie, we could still put on the front of our bulletin the best news. So let's look at this story and find out why. Let's look at Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 62, and then we'll go through the end of chapter 28. Go ahead and grab a Bible if you haven't uh, already done that. Uh, the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 1,553. Matthew 27, 62, through chapter 8, verse 20. 1,553, the Pew Bibles. As we look at this uh, text this morning, we're going to see two moments when the story of Jesus was supposed to end and be totally done, and then what happened instead of that. So let's look at these two moments. The first moment when the story of Jesus was supposed to be done forever came after his death and burial. The religious leaders of the day uh, protected against any kind of fabricated stories of an empty tomb. This is where the story begins, verse 62 of Matthew 27. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make this tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So as we pick up the story here, we're picking it up after the religious leaders have already won. Jesus, who had threatened their power and had threatened their existence and who seemed to them to be uh, a total fraud who was dangerously deceiving people, was dead. The Romans had made sure of that as they hung him on a cross. They executed him like a criminal. And, and the Romans knew what they were doing when it came to executing criminals. So these religious leaders could be very sure that Jesus is indeed dead. He's not going to haunt their dreams anymore. He is now dead, and he's buried in a tomb. But even as he's buried in the tomb, the religious leaders decide to make extra sure that the story of Jesus ends right here. And so they recall something that he had said about resurrection, which is interesting because Jesus' own followers don't seem to have uh, really understood what he was talking about. They didn't have a category for understanding that. And so the religious leaders think, well, if the disciples remember that, they might come and steal the body, and then there's an empty tomb that we have to explain, and the story of Jesus continues instead of ending. They don't want that to happen. Now, it's unlikely, of course, that the disciples would go from being scared and fearful to suddenly coming and stealing a body, but the leaders aren't going to take any chances. They have won, and they want to make sure this story about Jesus is done forever. So Pilate gives them a contingent of soldiers to guard the tomb, and the story of Jesus is well on its way to being done. No fabricated stories, no empty tomb, none of that. That's the plan. Except things don't go according to the plan. Chapter 28 of Matthew. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. 
He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. This was supposed to be the end of the Jesus story once and for all, never having to deal with this again. And yet God's plan has interrupted the leader's plan. God raises Jesus from death to life and sent his angel to roll away the tomb so that everyone could see that Jesus is not there anymore. What goes wrong with the leader's plan, of course, is that God himself acts. If all they had to do was keep human activity from entering the scene, then, then their plan would have been successful. If all they had to do was stop grave robbers, then these Roman soldiers would have been fine for the job. Except they can't stop God's plan. It's like that little phrase that's in your insurance policy if you look close enough, barring an act of God. We put that in there because we recognize that there are things that we can control and there are things that we can't control. Now, in legal language, it's about earthquakes and tornadoes and things like that. But at the same time, it is this recognition that there are things that are beyond our ability to protect against. And that's what these leaders find themselves up against. They, they make a good plan from, from a human standpoint, and yet God comes along and disrupts the whole thing. I always think about our, our attempts to control things like this, like, like making sandcastles on the beach. I love to make sandcastles. I, I can kind of relax a little bit, but really, I need to get to work, and I get my kids working on it with me. I set out a plan, and we fill all the buckets up with the right kind of sand. We pack it all together, make it look nice. Well, what's going to happen in a few moments with that sandcastle? If you're in the ocean, the tide's going to come in. It's just going to wash it all down. And you can try to barricade. You can try to you know, build a moat around it, all this kind of stuff. It just never works. And even here in Ludington, where we don't have the, the tide coming in and out, sand is so unstable, the wind coming off the lake and other people walking around, in a matter of time, your beautiful sandcastle is just another part of the sand. What the leaders are trying to do here in stopping this Jesus story is, is as fruitless, as pointless as trying to make a sandcastle that's going to last forever. It's simply not possible. They can't stop this Jesus story because this is the plan of God. And so rather than being finished, the story of Jesus has just taken a shocking and wonderful turn. These women who have come to see the tomb hear the angel proclaim what has happened. He has risen. This is what he said would happen, and, and it has happened. Then the angel goes and sends them to, to tell the disciples. And so the women are filled with joy. They're filled with fear. Nothing like this has ever happened before. It's an incredible story. And so they, they obediently go to tell the disciples what they have seen, what they have heard. And then on their way, Suddenly, Jesus meets them, and they do the only thing that you can do if you've seen someone raised from the dead. They fall at his feet. They worship him. So these two women who were showing their ongoing allegiance to Jesus after his death by trying to give him a proper burial have become the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And this actually speaks to the believability of this account as well. During this time period, the testimony of women was valued less than the testimony of men. Women were considered to be more gullible, and therefore their stories were a little less believable. So if the early Christians were just trying to make up a story to try to show that the resurrection was true, they would not have written it like this. It is very likely that they would have had men be the first witnesses to the resurrection and not women. If Matthew was writing propaganda, he would have written it differently. 
But instead, this is pointing to the believability of the account. He's writing what he saw, what he heard, what actually happened. But in any case, this has really ruined the religious leader's plan. And yet they have a little bit of hope that they can still kind of minimize this and, and, and keep things a little bit under wraps. And so we come to the second moment when the story of Jesus was supposed to end here and forever. And this is after he was raised. The leaders devised an alternative story to be able to tell the people. So the initial plan here has not worked, and now there's an empty tomb that they have to deal with. And the leaders have actually now make it harder on themselves by having soldiers at the tomb because now they have to explain why there's an empty tomb despite the fact that there were Roman soldiers there guarding it. They've actually made the story of resurrection more plausible. So it's time now for some damage control. Picking up again in verse 11. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So when the leaders now hear the report of the guards of this incredible supernatural event that has happened, they know that it's time to break out the bribe money. And so they instruct the guards, after paying them off, to tell this story about falling asleep on the job and a disciple's coming and taking the body of Jesus. Now, it doesn't sound like such a bad story until you think about it a little bit more. Like these guys had one job, right? These are professional soldiers, and they're supposed to go tell people that they failed to do the one thing that they were there to do. And this at a time when this kind of failure could have led to the execution of these soldiers. And that's why the, the leaders say that they're going to bribe the governor as well. So the very fact that these soldiers would be able to live to tell about the failure that they had speaks to the suspicion behind this account. And then you look at the details and think, well, well really none of the soldiers would have woken up if the disciples were rolling that big heavy stone out of the way. Surely at least one of them, if they were supposed to be on guard duty, would have woken up at this point. And then how would these disciples who are so fearful, who ran away scared, suddenly gain enough courage to confront Roman soldiers? This is, the story has lots of holes in it, but it's the best story that they have. And, and Matthew records that some people believe the story. It continues to be circulated years later. So on the one hand, you see that the religious leaders are doing damage control. They're, they're commissioning these soldiers to tell an alternative story, to try to explain this away and put an end to this whole Jesus story. And yet, even as they're doing that, we see a different kind of commissioning about the true story. Picking up again at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the disciples do what they're told. They go to Galilee like the angel and Jesus had told the women, and there they too meet the resurrected Jesus. And they have the same response as the women. They fall at his feet and they worship him. And yet, there's this note of realism there as well. But some doubted. And of course they did, right? That They're humans like you and I. They saw this man die. They know that Romans don't let criminals off crosses until they are sure, absolutely certain, that they are dead. But here's Jesus. 
And he's very much alive. And so this doubt will give way to belief. But the fact that Matthew records it at all, again, is showing that he is not writing propaganda. He's telling the events as they happened, as he saw, as he experienced. Remember, Matthew was one of those who was there. He was one of the ones who was in this crowd. And Jesus makes this claim here that you and I and every human have to make a decision about. It's in verse 18. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is the crux of the matter. That is the huge statement of Easter morning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If that's true, then Jesus really is the Son of God. He has the authority of God, and there's no choice for any of us but to worship him, to acknowledge that he is our king. This big statement is the, the theological conclusion of the resurrection of Jesus. See, if Jesus really is raised from the dead, then, then God has vindicated him as truly the son, of, uh, the son of God and declared him to be the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. And it's from this authority then that Jesus commissions his disciples to go and to tell the story. We'll look more at that next week. But for, for now, we see this is a commissioning to go and, and testify as eyewitnesses of what they've seen and heard and experienced of Jesus. And so the plan of the religious leaders has officially failed. This story of Jesus was supposed to be done. And they took the extra precautions even after the death of Jesus to make sure that no fabricated story of an empty tomb or resurrection was plausible at all. But the next thing they know, there's an empty tomb to deal with. And they try to minimize the damage of that empty tomb by then fabricating their own story of, of how that happened, of sleeping guards and of suddenly bold disciples. But another story spreads. It's the true story of of Jesus, who is shown to be the Son of God in the most miraculous way possible, God raising him from death to life. And now these very disciples are going to obedient, be obedient to Jesus, and they're going to tell the story to make more disciples of all nations, declaring that Jesus really is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Peter, one of the ones present, will in a few days go and preach to a big crowd of people in Jerusalem. And 3,000 people are going to believe what he says. They're going to put their trust in Jesus. And that forms the beginnings of the church. And we see through the book of Acts how the church continues to grow all around the, the known world. And in the 2,000 years since, that has continued to happen. This same story of the death of Jesus, of the resurrection of Jesus, has gone all the way around the globe. So that this morning, on Easter, there are people all around the globe with all different skin tones in all different languages who are praising God because of what we're celebrating this morning that Jesus was raised from death to life. And today, you and I are presented with the same message. It's a very simple message, but it's a powerful message. This is the message that has been passed down from those very first witnesses, from those two women who saw Jesus, to the disciples who met him in Galilee, and to the people that those disciples told. And Matthew himself wrote this down, this whole gospel, so we'd understand this is who Jesus is. This is a big deal. And today, you and I get the same choice, the same options that those first people had. We can believe that this message of Jesus dying and, and being resurrected is a fabricated story, or we can believe that it's the truth. Now, for many of us, it's still the, the most believable response is that this has to be some kind of hoax. To our modern ears, the, the idea of, of resurrection is simply unbelievable. Resurrection does not happen. It's, it's understandable that for many of us, that still is where we are. 
But I want you to consider that we have reliable witnesses that tell us this is a true message. The resurrection of Jesus transformed the lives of those who saw him and became witnesses. These these confused, fearful disciples will eventually stake their lives on the reality of the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they were confused, they were scared, they were scattered around, not knowing where to go or what to do. But after the resurrection, these are people who are willing to face prison and beatings and even death just to be able to tell more people what they've seen. The resurrection of Jesus is a life-changing event. It is a world-changing reality. I'm not going to try to overwhelm you with evidence for the truth of the resurrection, but instead, I want you to see why this is such good news for you and I today as well. The Apostle Paul who saw the resurrected Jesus himself, writes to a church in Ephesus, and he tells them that the ongoing prayer that he has for them. This is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Paul is praying that the church would know God better, and he's pointing to this future hope, the reality that is beyond our wildest dreams, that we have a true inheritance with God. We get to be in his presence, living in his perfect, recreated world where, where sickness and pain and death are just, they're done, and there's this new world that we get to enjoy forever. That's the future hope. And alongside of that future hope, Paul also wants us to understand that God's power for us today at work in us. He says that it is incomparably great power. And in case we don't get what he's talking about, in case we forget how amazing the power of God is, he says it is the same power that was at work when God raised Jesus from death to life. Think about that. If you are a follower of Jesus, the same power that was on display in the resurrection of Jesus is at work in you. God is using his Easter power in your life. Let me give you an example of what that looks like. Many Louis Zamperini was part of a bomber crew during World War II. Some of you know his story. It was told in the book Unbroken in the movie that came out a few years ago. But as they were on a rescue mission over the Pacific looking for survivors, his B-24 bomber had mechanical failures and ended up actually crashing into the ocean. He and two others survived the crash, and they managed to uh, find one of the life rafts that was aboard the, the plane. They were able to, to get on this boat, and they actually survived for over 40 days on the Pacific Ocean, on this tiny little raft. And finally, they they found land. They reached land, this tiny little island, and and they thought that that this would be the end of this grueling ordeal that they'd been part of, except that that island was uh, led by the Japanese at the moment. And so they went from being uh, castaways to suddenly becoming prisoners of war. And the Japanese prisoner of war camps were notorious for how uh, terrible the conditions were. And for the remainder of World War II, Zamperini faced appalling conditions. And in particular, he became one of the favorite targets of a notorious guard nicknamed the Bird. Grueling torture day after day after day. Incredibly, Zamperini survived all of this. After the the, the plane crash, after the, the floating on the ocean for over a month and a half, all this stuff in the prisoner of war camp, he survived all of that. And finally, when the American troops came to bring liberation, it seemed like at last he was free. Except that he wasn't free. He went back to his home in California and 
and he started what he thought was going to be a, a new life. He married this beautiful woman, and he thought, okay, things are going to be different now. Now I'm going to experience real life, except that those, that history, what he had experienced, kept coming back. He had nightmares that kept him up at night. He, he woke up one night with his hands around his wife's neck, strangling her. He was having this nightmare that he was finally getting revenge on this particular guard that had tormented him. He ended up drinking heavily to, to dull the pain of the memories and to try to escape the flashbacks that he kept experiencing. His marriage deteriorated due to his drinking and then the violence and everything else. And it seemed like he had no hope at all. He had nowhere to turn. There was nothing that was going to make this any better. The one thing that, that kept him going, kept driving his life, was this thought that someday he was going to get his revenge. Someday he was going to kill that guard. He was going to find him, and he was going to make him pay. Freedom was simply unattainable. About the same time, there was a young evangelist named Billy Graham who uh, set up a tent in Los Angeles. Zampri's wife heard about it, and she went. She convinced her husband to come and hear this young guy speak, and he really did not want to go. He was incredibly reluctant, but he finally decided just to get his wife to stop nagging him. He would go and hear Billy Graham. And as Graham spoke simply about the cross and the story of God's love, offering forgiveness of sin, the whole time, Zamperini sitting there arguing in his mind, that can't be true. I don't need forgiveness. What I need is release. What I need is freedom. I don't need to be forgiven. I'm not a bad person. That other guy, he's a bad person. But the more he argued in his mind, and the more he heard Graham speak, he came to this startling conclusion. What, the man, what this man is saying is true. Zamperini came to trust Jesus that day. And the power of God at work and raising Jesus from death to life began to work in this man's life. The nightmares stopped. And rather than continuing to be driven by this dream of revenge against this terrible man who had tortured him, he was able to actually forgive him. Years later, he was able to go back to Japan and again set foot in those terrible prisoner of war camps. But rather than feeling oppression, he felt peace. He finally found freedom. That is the power of God, the resurrection power of God to transform broken lives. Now that's a dramatic story, and not every story of the power of God at work in our lives is a dramatic story, but nonetheless there are thousands of powerful stories that testify to this same truth. When our church gets to welcome new members into our church family, one of the things we do is, is have them share their testimony of, of how God has worked in their life to draw them to Jesus. And again and again, we hear stories of how the resurrection power of God was at work in drawing people to himself. And all the stories are different. They are all unique, and yet they were so powerful in seeing that God is still alive and active today. Our church has over 100 members, which means that there are over 100 stories right here among us of the resurrection power of God that is alive and active today. If you don't yet know that power, if, if this story of Jesus still just sounds too unbelievable to you, go and find out someone who has experienced this unbelievable power of God in their own life and ask them about their story. Ask them to tell you what they have experienced of Jesus. 
These stories are all around us. They're wonderful stories. And, and all of those stories went right back here to this day. Jesus was raised from death to life. God defeated death. And that same power is at work to bring new life to those who trust in Jesus. And that's the best news. That's why we celebrate Easter. Pray with me. God, the truths of Easter are, they sound too good to be true. How could someone possibly be raised from death to life? How could you possibly work new life into our brokenness? How could you possibly have that kind of power to ordinary people like us? We thank you so much for the great news of Jesus. And I thank you for the reminder this morning. Would you please shape our hearts so that we would know you and that we'd be filled with joy and give all praise and glory to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.